I don't know about you, but that song messes me up every time. Written hundreds of years ago, and it still has the power of God's Spirit flowing through it. Um, you heard Michael mention that uh, this is our birthday, and um, four years ago, approximately, a little bit longer than that, actually, uh, this facility was given to us to launch a new church with, and that was the condition of the gift. Uh, this facility was, would you launch a new church? And um, started with... Uh, 30, 40 people, and God's blessed it to the point where we're at three services now. If this is your first time here. There's a service that meets on Saturday night and one that met at 9.15 and then this fellowship right now. So if you want a chance to get to meet everybody that's calling New Hope their church, come to that picnic today at 5 o'clock. I'd love to see you there and get a chance to talk with you. Um, one other thing I wanted you to know is we're getting ready here at New Hope to launch a men's ministry, and it's going to start in the month of October. Um, one of the first things that we're going to do, guys, is we're going to go to an event. Um, and it's an opening of a movie called Courageous, and you may have seen it recently previewed. October 3rd, Monday night, there's some sign-up sheets in the back, but you're going to hear more about it next week as well, and we'll give you details on that. But we're going to get a men's uh, group going together. I hesitate to call it a study because it's more of a time where guys can connect, but we're also going to do a few minutes in devotional time just so you guys can get to know each other and we can talk about real-life issues. Um, last week, Debbie let us know that um, she had 93 bodies downstairs in the children's ministry program, and the, the church is just continuing to experience this growth, so we're trying to figure out space issues and how to navigate some of that, but um, that's all good. That's not a complaint. It's just working through what God is doing here. Um, this morning when you came in, you probably picked up one of the bulletins if somebody didn't hand one to you, and you may have found a, a little white insert sheet in there. Typically, you find study notes in there in which uh, there's blank spaces. You can fill in the blanks as we work through it. What I've given you this morning is just some highlights from the message and then a big blank white area where you can write down your own thoughts. So there's a couple things in there that will pop out to you, especially right here in the beginning that I want you to see. Um, before we do that, let me... Uh, just kind of give a premise of where we're at. We're doing this study that's very brief um, for just a few weeks called I Won't Back Down, and then we're going to step back into our study of the book of John. But last week what we did is we looked at Daniel, David as he took on the giant Goliath, and this morning we're going to look at Daniel. And I really wanted to gear this especially towards the students in our congregation uh, because of what Daniel was going through. He's probably 16 or 17 years of age when he snatched away from his home by a foreign invasion army, and he's taken all the way across the desert 500 miles away. So that's what we're going to be examining this morning. So if you don't mind, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up your Bible to Daniel chapter 1. If you can navigate your way through the Old Testament, you're also going to see the verses up on the screen. And there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. Now, if you don't happen to own your own Bible, those are there for your benefit, not only to read this morning, but take one with you when you leave as our gift to you. We really want you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand. It, no greater gift that we can give you. So feel free if you don't own a Bible to take one with you when you leave this morning. So I found as I'm looking through Daniel chapter 1, there's two really distinct ways of looking at the events and the actions here on planet Earth. Number one, you can view things through the lens of what we call history. The who, the why, or the, the where, and the when. Those would be the history categories. But then there's also the theological category, and that belongs to those of us who name the name of God, who follow after Jesus. We would say there's a why component to the actions and the events going on on planet Earth. 
And it can be as recent as what's going on with the Qaddafi regime and the fall in Libya, or it can be as ancient as what happened in the Garden of Eden. There's always a why factor in which God is working behind the scenes. I want to give you an example of that. It's in your notes, but you're also going to see it up on the screen. Let's look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. First of all, just a sentence. And you're going to see in verse 1 it says this, Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and besieged it, meaning he laid waste to it. Now that's a historical perspective from verse 1. The writer wanted us to see the historical bent This is a real historical event. Nebuchadnezzar, great king from Babylon, came and laid waste to Israel. But then there's also this other perspective in verse 2. This is what it says in one sentence. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. Okay? God was behind the scenes. So yes, a real historical event. But God the creator, the sovereign God, controller of the universe, is the one that actually allowed it to happen. He allowed this to unfold. So what we discover, especially as we work through Daniel this morning, we're going to see that God exists in a very dynamic relationship with us. No matter how distant you feel from God or how out of control things seem, you're watching what's going on in Wall Street, you're watching what's going on in the Middle East, and you think, God can't possibly be involved in this. Well, what Scripture points out to us is many times, God is active in these events, allowing things to unfold to work out his purposes. Perhaps the most common statement found in all of the Bible is this, then the Lord intervened, meaning God inserts himself when things seem to be at their worst. Clearly, many people feel like God has washed his hands and walked away from the whole thing. But if you only think about what Jesus said, When Jesus said in John chapter 3, for God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son, you recognize right away that God the creator loves us and he's very concerned about what's going on here. But he allows things to play out. Now many times as he allows things to play out, he allows situations that seem, especially in your own personal life, to become impossible from human standards. We view things through a certain lens and say, this absolutely can't work. How can I possibly survive this situation? And we think God has washed his hands of the situation. But here's what I know to be true about our God. He never puts up caution tape around certain areas and stops us. He allows us to walk into certain situations, especially situations that cause him to be brought glory by our actions. Let me give you an example. What we looked at last week with David and Goliath. God never put tape up and said, whoa, David, that's a danger zone. Don't go there. No, in other words, he allowed David to walk right into that battle with Goliath and show God glory and show God powerful. So God doesn't put up this caution tape that many people want to see. What you're going to see, not only from what we looked at last week, what you're going to see this morning is that each individual we're looking at has a challenge in their life. An event has unfolded and they have the opportunity to bring God glory in the midst of it. Especially what you're going to see with this teenager is the temptation in our mind to think, why doesn't God pluck him out of that situation? Because that's what we really would like. We'd like to be rescued from these situations. But God doesn't remove us. He expects us 
to flourish in the culture that we're in. So let's move into Daniel chapter 1. We're going to see these four teenagers that have been snatched away and they're taken to a distant land. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. In the third king, I'm sorry, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So we get the viewpoint of history right away. 605 BC, this mighty empire, the world's greatest known empire, decides to go into their Babylonian expansion policy and they move down towards Egypt. And King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Assyrian and the Persian Empire, moves against Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. And there is an incredible clash of military strength. And in the wake of it, after King Nebuchadnezzar defeats Pharaoh, he moves back to Babylon to go to his dad's funeral. And on the way, he stops off in Jerusalem and decides to lay it waste as well. And God gave Israel into his hand. So what we discover is that Nebuchadnezzar very quickly put a puppet king in place by the name of Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim served under Nebuchadnezzar's rule for three years. Now what Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know is that God is working behind the scenes, unraveling his plan. So look at verse 2 because now we get the viewpoint of theology. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. So you get a reminder right away, God has not taken his hand off the rudder. He's never stopped watching these events. He's inserting himself into it. So what is this land of Shinar that's being referred to in verse 2? I've got a map for you that goes up on the screen so that you can understand in the Middle East where this sits. So if you look way off to what would be your left, you see the Mediterranean Sea, and right next to it, you see the land of Israel. In in biblical terms, it's called Judah at that time. And just above the word Judah, you see the city of Jerusalem. But if you follow that brown line, which is the land, that the path that the slaves had to take to get all the way to Babylon, you'll notice that they went way up north, and then they went due east, and then down into the area of Babylonia. 500-mile journey on foot, as captives, in handcuffs, in chains. Teenagers who'd had everything that they'd known destroyed as they're being hauled away, looking back, not only seeing mom and dad in the distance, but seeing pillars of smoke rising up. Their buildings decimated because this king came in and laid siege to their land. Now, there's a couple other authors in the Bible that write about this same situation because this was so monumental in the life of the Israelites. Matter of fact, look with me up on the screen, 2 Kings 24.1. This is what this writer said. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. The Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, bands of Armenians, and bands of Moabites, and bands of Ammonites. So he sent them against Judah to destroy it. Another version, Second Chronicles 36.6. Against him came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in fetters to carry him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried off the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. This is a monumental event. The collapse of a nation. And in the midst of it, the choicest, 
most perfect young people, the future of their nation, are hauled away into slavery. Now this week I was really trying to get my mind around this. What does this look like to become a captive? What does it mean to have everything taken from you that you know that's familiar to you? So I decided to call one of the police officers that attends here and asked him if he could throw me in jail this week. And he complied, and he actually did. So I got proof. I mean, there's a picture. That actually, yeah, your pastor did time. Um, what I wanted to sense was, what is it like? And I, I don't want to compare an hour you know, behind a jail cell or, or a short time to what these guys witnessed. But here's what I observed, and especially talking to the sergeant who books prisoners. What he said was, we remove everything from them. We take their jewelry, we take their possessions, we take their clothing. In my case, they didn't give me one of those cool orange jumpsuits, but that's what they do. They give them jumpsuits to wear, so they have nothing. Now, I walked into an isolation chamber where they do solitary confinement for individuals, and then I went into this cell, and after I left, Steve Whalen and I were talking with one of the police officers, and who does the admitting, and we're watching the monitors on the screen, and some of the prisoners that were in the cells had their shirts pulled up over their head, and one guy's just rocking back and forth like this. He'd gone into turtle mode. he just tucked up inside his shell, and I asked the officer why he did that. He said, you know, they got nothing else. This is their space, and they're just trying to shut everything else out, so they just go up inside their gown. It's got to be part of what Daniel was feeling. Everything he knew had been robbed of him. And he's a teenager. Now, where is he being taken, this land of Shinar? I've got an image I want to put on the screen so that you can appreciate what this looks like because this is reconstructed. In, if you go to Berlin, Germany, and you go into the Museum of Berlin, this is one of the reconstructed gates of the city of Babylon that they built inside the museum. Now, if I was standing next to this, I'd just be very tiny. You can see the fence way down there in the bottom. There were 80 of these gates that outlined the city of Babylon. As a matter of fact, they had a wall, and the wall was 300 feet high. It was thick enough that four chariots could ride abreast all the way around the city. How big was the city? 14 miles by 14 miles by 14 miles in circumference, the wall reached around the city. The foundation of the wall went 35 feet down into the ground. This is a massive city. Nothing like this exists on planet Earth today. So when Daniel came from his distant land as a prisoner and sees a 300-foot-high wall, you know he's thinking, I'm never getting out of here. I'm never going to be freed. I can't possibly get an escape from this. Why? Because once they entered the gates, next image you'll see a moat surrounding the city. And then you were ushered into the downtown area of Babylon. Walking through the Ishtar Gate, which is what you just saw earlier, there was a processional way. And lining the processional way is where they always took their prisoners. On either side of it were these massive 80-foot statues to their gods. Nabu, Aku, Bel, the different gods that they worshipped. So Daniel's in a very foreign environment and now he also realizes that the vessels, the things that they use to worship God, Jehovah with, 
had also been taken along with them. They've robbed God's temple, emptied it, and carried everything off to Babylon. The ultimate humiliation. So here's the implication for us. God allowed these circumstances to unfold in order to accomplish his purposes. He is the one that saw his people overthrown. He is the one that saw his city, the holy city of Jerusalem, overthrown. He is the one that allowed his people to be carried into captivity. And Daniel's got to be realizing this. Along with all the other people of Jerusalem, I'm sure if you stood in the city at the time they were being conquered, you would have heard this. God, where are you? Don't you see what's going on on Wall Street? Don't you see what's happening in the Middle East? Where are you in the midst of this? It feels like you've walked away. How could you possibly let this king from another land come and conquer us and destroy us? But God's perspective is entirely different. As a matter of fact, if you back up to the book of Isaiah, you'll see warning after warning after warning. Look with me on the screen, Isaiah 39.6. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So what you're witnessing here is God's absolute sovereignty over world events. But woven through the fabric of it is the story of a teenager. Daniel himself, and verse 3, focuses down like a zoom lens right onto his life. Go with me to verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So behind the scenes, we see families, godly families, being ripped apart at the seams because of the events going on here. They're no longer surrounded by the things of God. They no longer have their school teachers around them. They no longer have their parents around them. And now they have to meet a very exacting standard to even have the privilege of being in the king's court. What are the qualifications in verse 4? Youths who, they have no defect, they're good looking, they're intelligent, they have great understanding. Ashpenaz, the king's personal assistant, is going to recruit them. Now think about this. The greatest empire on planet earth, the king's personal assistant, is going to choose who gets to come into his presence. Now, what is this referring to when it says there's no blemish in them, no defect? Because that's used other places in Scripture. It actually describes David. It describes Joseph. It describes David's son, Absalom. Look with me on the screen, 2 Samuel 14, 25. Now in all Israel was no one, there was it now in all Israel was no one as handsome as Absalom. So highly praised from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. So he's like he looks like me, kind of, you know? All right? So we've got this guy who's not only incredibly good looking, Daniel, we're speaking of who's also found to be very intelligent. Here's the word that's used, B'nai. He's able to separate mentally. He's cunning, diligent, so incredibly beautiful. 
incredibly intelligent. And God allows him to be taken captive into a foreign king's court? He's going to be given unlimited opportunities because Ashpenaz is in charge, the king's personal assistant. He's going to unveil these opportunities, but they have to qualify first. And part of the qualification is that they're going to come under intense social pressure. Their classmates are going to be involved in things that they're going to pressure him to become involved in as well. He also has to do things to measure up to the king's standards. We know for sure that when he says, I want you to teach them the literature and the language of Chaldeans, according to archaeology, we understand that there were four languages that you had to master to be in the king's presence. Akkadian, which was the language of business. If you wanted to do business for the king, you had to master Akkadian. Assyrian, which was the language of law. And there was Aramaic, the language of worship. They had to master these languages along with their native tongue in order to represent the king. So you think it's rough when you've got to go to algebra class? These guys really had a learning course in front of them. Go with me to verse 5. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now that sounds pretty good. I mean, the king's buffet table, you get to go there every day for breakfast, lunch, and supper until you understand that the king's table and all the food that was brought before the king first had to be offered to the idols. They would walk the buffet plates out before Bel, out before Naku, out before Abu, and it became idol worship food. And then they would bring it to the king because the king worshipped those idols. So Daniel's got this situation now where he's facing something in which he's being asked to do an action which is contrary to God's commands. And he's being pressured not only from above, but from the people who surround him, his classmates. Total blasphemy. So let's put this in context. I want you to see this image on the screen. I think an artist captured it well. You've got this modern city according to their time with massive walls surrounding it. Daniel's inside in the king's palace. And now he's being told he's not only going to have to forget about his past, he's going to have to learn the king's ways and he's going to have to eat the king's food. Separate them from what they know. Provide them with new opportunities. This king had a long-term strategy for revising their thinking. Go with me to verse 6. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. You ever had somebody call you names when you were in school? Okay. It's one thing to take a nickname upon yourself. One thing to have an affectionate term. It's another thing to have a bully or someone opposed to you call you names. What you're seeing here is the forced renaming. Now, if you grew up in church, you're familiar with the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But I wonder if you know what the meaning of the names are behind the names. Look with me on the screen. Daniel's name meant God is my judge. The word El is God. So Dan yell, reminded him constantly, Jehovah God is my judge. The new name they gave him, Belteshazzar, means he belongs to Bel. 
The name Hananiah, Yahweh has shown grace. Shadrach, you're under the command of a coup. Mishael, who is what God is? They renamed him Meshach, who is what a coup is, causing him to rethink. The next name, Azariah, Yahweh has helped. Abednego means the servant of Nebo. So every place they go, when people call them by their new names, you are Babylonian. You belong to King Nebuchadnezzar. We've given you names day after day after day in the hallway. It begins to reshape your thinking. You begin to think of yourself as the king wants you to think. If you don't mind, later today or maybe this week, read through the remaining 12 chapters of Daniel. It's a short book. And you're going to see that by the end of Daniel's life and throughout the course of his life, the people in the king's court were still calling him Daniel because he had such a profound influence on the court that he lived in. The king called him at first by the name Belteshazzar, but eventually even the king warmed up to him because he was so distinct for God that he granted him the favor of calling him Daniel. He's living as God's man even in Babylon. Living for God takes place first in your mind, church. That's where it starts. And Daniel knew that. He understood Romans 12.1. Look with me on the screen. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, that's where true worship begins first. Your head attitude. Check your heart. Daniel understood that. So at the very beginning of his journey, he's faced with a really clear trial. Do I conform to the ways I'm being forced into or am I spiritually distinct yet culturally relevant? Verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. So Daniel's got that same key element we talked about last week that we saw with David. Personal resolve. He's personally determined not to defile himself. This word that's used here when it says he made up his mind is the word sum. I want you to see the definition for it because in the midst of it is the meaning. It says heap up. It means that what Daniel did is he piled up thought upon thought upon thought about the things that he knew to be true about the character and nature of God. He determined, he made resolve in his mind, I will not allow myself to be defiled. I know the ways of God and the things that he's called me to do. Worldly wisdom would say this, Daniel, come on. I mean, God brought you all the way here. You've been 500 miles on the trail. What's the big deal? It's just a stake. Come on, Daniel, what's, what's the problem? Who's going to know? I mean, look how far we are away from our parents. How could they possibly know? Daniel made up his mind not to resolve, not to defile himself. So let's look at this word defile because I really wanted to understand what is this young man doing? Here's the word. It's pronounced sha'al, even though there's a G in it. You see the second part of the def definition for it? to soil or desecrate. 
Do you know what it means, church, to soil yourself? You've heard that used before, haven't you? That's what Daniel's word picture was in his mind because they thought in word pictures. To defile himself meant to take this garbage and dump it upon his life and defy the Lord God. And he sought in his mind not to defile himself. So here's a question for you. Maybe you want to write this one down in your notes. When do you personally decide to take that stand? When do you decide to do that? My belief is this, from the very beginning of the confrontation. Before you walk into the movie theater to see the movie that you shouldn't see. Before you walk into the nightclub where you shouldn't be. Before you pick up the magazine that you shouldn't read. Before you visit the website that you shouldn't visit. You step back and say, God, this is yours. I surrender this. I am not going to defile myself. Surrender it to God. That's what Daniel did from the very beginning. And what did he do in response? He sought permission from the commander. He went in great humility. There's no campaign going on. I'm very impressed with Daniel. He's not picketing him saying, let's do an Ashpenaz recall campaign. Let's get him out because I don't like what he's offering me for food. No, in response to him, he went with great humility. And he said, I need your permission See, the Babylonians can change Daniel's home. They can change his textbooks. They can change his lunch menu. But they cannot change his heart. And he's a heart that's set apart for God. So he did something much, much harder. He dared to believe that God would be powerful in the midst of the circumstances that he was in. Instead of asking God to remove him from the situation, he's intelligent. He approaches the situation saying, how can I adjust myself so that I can still bring God glory? So what you're seeing here is a living out of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let's go on the screen and move on. Verse 9, now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. Daniel's under some really intense pressure now. Not only are his classmates pressuring him, his boss is pressuring him, the guy who's over him. But he knows God's word. So obviously what we see here is a young man who has very good relationship with his boss because he's willing to listen to him and hear him out. I see in the midst of this a model that I I put in your notes this morning that I want you to see because when you're under intense pressure, you can think back to what Daniel did here. You'll see it up on the screen as well. Here's the first thing he did. First of all, Daniel was very decisive. Verse 8, he purposed in his heart. The next thing that he did, his humility. He wasn't proud and arrogant. Verse 8 says he was so humbled that he went and sought permission. And the third thing, Daniel's got a sense of expectation, and I think this surpasses many Christians today. Daniel believed that God would be there in the midst of the circumstances. A sense of expectation that if you set yourself apart, you make yourself spiritually distinct, God is going to be there in the midst of it. That's Daniel's sense of expectation. But now he finds himself up against this official who's afraid to change his mind because he might lose his head. As a matter of fact, the way it's actually written here in the Hebrew, he says, you're going to make my head guilty. 
It's your diet, Daniel. It's my head. I'm the one that's going to get decapitated. But Daniel understood what Scripture says. Look on the screen, Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Go with me to verse 11. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. Now, ten days is not very long. I and mean, when you're doing time for three years, ten days is a pretty brief window. So he's being very intelligent, very humble, and he's giving his boss an out. He's not coming to his supervisor and saying, I've got to have this, I want my way, and I want it now. He's saying, just test me for 10 days. And if at the end, after you compare us, we don't measure up, then you can deal with us accordingly. Go with me to verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. It's the only place in the Bible you're ever going to see a teenager want to be fatter. Okay? Verse 16, so the overseer continued with, to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. If you don't mind writing in your Bible or circling things, I think that that first two words in verse 14, he listened to them, is very significant. Because we have a young man who is spiritually distinct yet culturally relevant. His boss, who works for the greatest king on the empire of the earth, the Babylonian empire, who has necessarily no real time for teenagers rebelling against him, is willing to listen to them. He obviously has established such a relationship with him. This is highly significant. Now, I understand that this probably required a miracle. It's a reversal of the laws of nutrition. Because if you understand what David, Daniel ate here, what he was served was ground seeds. The word vegetable is what we use in the English language, but they had seeds that they would take and they would pulverize it into pulp, much like when we eat oatmeal. So they're served gruel for 10 days. And as a result of it, they measure up. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. So on top of their normal intellectual capacity, God really blessed them. Not because of their diet, but because of their commitment to his word. Because they were faithful to God. And as a result, they master every area of the Akkadian culture, the Sumerian culture, and they become a force for the culture that they live in. Daniel even mastered onomerasi, which is the ability to interpret dreams, the same gift that God gave to Joseph. He also gives to Daniel, and he's going to use it later on in his life. Verse 18, this is where it begins to wrap up. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. So I can picture the courtroom scene. Ashpenaz, bring in the royal subjects. It's my turn. I'm going to give them a formal oral exam. I'm sure Ashpenaz was very proud to present these young men to him. 
because they obviously are excelling. But the king himself is personally going to conduct the exam. Verse 19, the king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. Through our American mindset, we would love to stop right there after Mishael and Azariah and have it say, so they got to go home. Because they've just won Babylonians got talent. They're the winners of the contest. They should be handed the million dollar prize. Yeah, they're the best. I mean, send them home in a limousine. But if you look at that really closely, our God causes them to excel. Why? So he can use them right where they're at in the midst of this culture. They're not hiding. They're staying where they're at. Verse 20, as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And when you see that word magicians and conjurers, it makes you step back a little bit, but actually it's a biblical term for scientists and mathematicians. So among all the students captured from all over the known world who were brought to the king, among all his employees, brilliant scientists and mathematicians, Daniel and his friends ten times better than everybody who works for the king. The king himself had to admit it. Verse 21, And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. May not mean a lot to you, but that means he served under four monarchs. From 605 B.C. to 530 B.C., he survived four nasty kings. You can read about it later yourself. Because God so favored him and used him. If Daniel, as a teenager, had worried about what others think and the personal pressure that was put on him, you'd probably never find his book written in the Bible. But because he resolved in his mind that he would not back down no matter what, he gave an example of what God expects of you, to never back down. Students in this room, we need you. We need you to represent the King of Kings in the classroom, in the lunchroom, in the hallways, at the parties after school. To no matter what, say to yourself, I will not be defiled. I have set myself apart for God. And you see what God did with the life of Daniel. It is amazing. As a matter of fact, about a year from now, we're going to study the entire book of Daniel. We'll get there eventually, and especially the things that God gave Daniel to see about end times. The book of Daniel, if you don't know this, works incredibly well with the book of Revelation. The two stand side by side. So we'll get back into this eventually. But what I wanted you to see this morning is Daniel, who had personal resolve, was spiritually distinct, yet culturally relevant, and God used him powerfully. That's what I pray for our church as we take on this next year ahead of us. So would you pray with me to make that true? Let's ask God to seal that in our hearts. Father, we thank you that you've given us these four years that are behind us, and we look forward to what you're going to do in the next year ahead of us, and I have no idea what that is. But you're doing your thing, and you're being glorified in the midst of it. We just ask that you, be, that you would be 
um, active in such a way that we would be caused to be responding to you. Father, help us not to get ahead of you whatsoever. But God, I ask for each of us, man and woman, student, child here in this auditorium, that you would take the truths that we've heard this morning and you would ingrain them in us, seal them deeply in our hearts. Father, that we would be known as a church, a group of people who will not conform to the ways of the world, but that we would set ourselves apart for your use and for your purpose. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, we ask this. Amen. Hope to see you at the picnic later today. Have a great week.